Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, the training set for every skeptical large language model out there. And believe me, there are many. I'm here with my doer, as they say in Scotland, co-host, economist, author, music geek, statistics nerd, Will Page, and myself, independent analyst, Richard Kramer. If there's a bubble that burst, we pricked it first, and we want to continue pricking bubbles into 2024. With 350 days ahead, we're going to look at what the smoke signals are, good and bad, that you should be aware of for the year to come. We can look back over 100 episodes proudly exposing sycophants and stenographers for creating the bubbles and getting our portfolios into trouble, and then looking at some of the people trying to clean them up after the mess has been made. And today, we're going to look forward and try to make sense of the madness that lies in wait for us in 2024. Back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Great to join back with you again in 24, Richard. And for this episode, for our audience's benefit, I thought we'd do split personalities. A bit of Burke and Hare if I go back to Scotland. and have Mr. Nasty and Mr. Nice. And Mr. Nasty, well, I think you fit that personality just perfectly, Richard. Thank you, Will. That is, in the first part of the show, let's discuss the troubles ahead. Let's discuss the headwinds, the stuff that's going to slow this economy, this political situation down and create turbulence and force us to put our seatbelts on. And in the second half, given my character, my personality, thanks for that duo reference in your introduction, I'm going to be Mr. Nice. So I want to put the tailwinds into the show, the stuff which is going to accelerate progress and turn those frowns upside down. And we'll split it up that way and see where we get to to give the audience a balance, good news and bad news, but also we can interrogate each other and see if we've taken a stupid pill or whether our headwinds and tailwinds have some substance. Now, Richard, headwinds, stuff that when planes hit into headwinds, they tend to slow down, they hit turbulence, your seatbelt signs on, that food that you just ate on that British Airways aircraft suddenly floats towards your throat level and potentially upwards and further still. Let's imagine we're on that plane. Let's imagine the seatbelt sign is on and let's imagine you're on the tannoy and you're going to tell the passengers on that plane what the turbulence is about. Give us your first example of a headwind to look out for in 2024. Well, first of all, Will, I have to put a little disclaimer there, which is I would never eat food on airplanes generally and definitely not on British Airways. Uh, I'll unfortunately be flying British Airways soon to go see my mother for her birthday and I'll bring all my own food on the plane because I know how awful that food can be but I, I believe there's a label on that food which says this will give you the rumble in the jungle 
Indeed. Uh, not fit for human consumption. <laughs> so let's get back to reality. Um, I think that's my first headwind. Uh, there has been an enormous amount of hype over the course of the year about AI, about how it's going to reorder society, about how we're coming for a soft landing in the economy and everything's going to be fine. But what we're already seeing in 2024 is another wave of cost cuts. And this is surely going to mean that companies will also have to forego some of the revenue opportunities they were chasing. Your former employer, Spotify, at the end of last year, fired 15% of its workforce after they'd already made two rounds of layoffs earlier in the year. And all of these companies will have to have their eye on refinancings in 2024 or 2025 that was the debt that they financed earlier in, let's say, 2020 or 2021, but that had a zero interest rate and it's not zero anymore. So we're already seeing lots of companies cut costs and cut staff. And everyone saw last year, it was a huge success for Mark Zuckerberg and Meta, which had its year of efficiency. And now also we're into this year of AI hype where we're supposed to start seeing the productivity benefit from all of that new technology that's being deployed. And so I think one of the realities that's going to be a headwind for companies and for the economy is just how many more people could get thrown out of work. And indeed, companies have plans to expand in all these different areas, but when they fire the teams that are doing that, they won't make those expansions. Uh, so I think there is a dose of reality that needs to come into the market discussion that just has kind of been absent at the back end of last year when everybody was assuming we were going to cut rates over the course of 2024. So let me do the cross-examination on your first headwind for a second. Are we saying this is a headwind for tech or is it a headwind for society? That is, overbloated tech companies learn how to cut costs and get their balance sheets into shape. That's a good sign. That's not necessarily a headwind. Or is your concern that there's a spillover, collateral damage, you could say, of laying off all of these workers is going to hurt economic growth? Um, the increase in unemployment is going to upset the fiscal balance. Is it? Where's your headwind for? Are you addressing the tech community or are you addressing the labor market? Um, the simplest answer for you, Will, is yes and yes. Because if you look at the distribution of jobs... We know there's a Pareto distribution or sort of 20-80 rule, if you will, where 20% mm -hmm. of the population might have relatively good paying jobs, white collar type jobs. And unfortunately, we have a very large swathe of the population that's, that's doing very low paid jobs, often on zero hours contracts, poorly treated. You know, the NHS has 100,000 vacancies and not all of them are for brain surgeons or, wow. or uh, gastroenterologists, right? We need a lot more people to do the basic work and we haven't been paying them enough. But at that high end, you know, the, the, the sexy rock star of years gone by of your youth was replaced in the past three or four or five years by the data scientist. And they were the ones getting bid up with the highest salaries by tech companies. And those tech companies were at the vanguard of hiring tens of thousands of people each over the course of the last two, three, four years. And now that's all getting wound back. So the difference is in a lot of those other industries, you didn't go through that hiring binge where 
some of the big tech companies added literally 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people over the course of two or three years. And clearly, now they're looking at AI and other productivity improvements or looking at revenues that aren't going to materialize and realizing, you know what, we can do without some of those people. Right. So I guess what you're digging into here is the imbalance of supply and demand. There could be lots of computer sciences graduates pouring out of university this September looking for jobs in tech, but those tech companies won't be looking for graduates. Or as a joke goes, what do you say to a first class computer science graduate? A Big Mac and fries, please. That's going to be where the problem is. Yeah. And maybe that doesn't happen so much in the West as it happens globally, if you think about it. I mean, China generates a, a million plus engineering graduates a year. But if the Chinese economy simply can't get out of its own way and, and is stuck in a low GDP growth scenario, then that's why you have this so-called lie-down generation in China of young people who, who've worked and slaved to make sure they would get the best marks and go to the best universities and get the best degrees, and now they find that they can't get jobs. Great stuff. So just to wind, put a pin in headwind number one here, I just want to remind our audience there are headcount reductions and there's headcount reductions. My favorite one being Amazon fires 10,000 people and it was 10,000 people who worked in recruitment. And that just gives you an idea of the nuance of when you hear layoffs, try and get beneath the headline, understand what's really going on. Mm. All right, let's get back on the airplane. Uh, I've loosened my seatbelt. Um, I'm consuming my beef shin dish from British Airways, which was Ooh, best before gosh. 1066. And I'm ready to see the seatbelt sign go back on again and for that pilot to get on the tannoy and tell me what headwind number two is for 2024. Yeah, and that's going to be a lot of turbulence for your frequent flyer there. I think you're going to see <laughs> some massive macro swings and uncertainties. And, and no one really wants to confess the ways in which that will hit them. I mean, we've heard about a huge pullback in VC funding. That's going to be choking off a lot of where innovation was supposed to come from. We've heard about cutbacks in, in segments of the economy like luxury goods and discretionary spend. And that's going to have a trickle-down effect. And, and what you're going to see with all the big tech companies, they're going to be facing regulatory pressure. But realistically, it's their small rivals that are more in danger of getting wiped out or struggling to, to come up with the cash flows to keep going. And what you see is that the market swings from wild optimism to even wilder optimism to where at the end of last year, everybody thought we'd, we'd come to the end of this interest rate cycle and, and interest rates were going to head back to where they naturally belong, which of course is zero. Uh, but, but that was unfortunately, except for the economics graduates that, that were born in the, uh, after 2000 and, and never had seen real interest rates as, as an adult, as a young adult, mm -hmm. you know, that this was not the normal. Um, so I think that those, those turbulences that we're going to see in the economy, the swings from wild optimism to terrible pessimism, and indeed pushed along by the next geopolitical crisis, be it Ukraine, the way that pushed things up, uh, you know, two years ago, and then the terrible issues in the Middle East that, that sprung up last autumn, and now the supply chain disruption that's we're at risk of around the Red Sea, you're going to see these turbulences come forward and, frankly, throw a spanner in those simple uh, calculations that are supposed to go up yeah. and to the right. 
known unknowns hitting the forecast, which wasn't in the formula in the first place. Now, just on that, a couple of questions there just before we wrap up headwind number two. Talk to me again about what this means for the tech companies listening to this show hoping to get an exit this year. Do you think we're going to hear the words down round more often now than we've seen in the past as you know, all of a sudden all the projections and projections that we had in place to get this company up into the market, just the cash burn issues, interest rate issues, just mean those tech companies are not going to get the exits they achieved. Is there going to be a lot more recurrence of the words down rounds in 2024? So I think we're past the point of down rounds. I think down rounds are a thing of the past in the sense of what you're looking at now is rescue rights issues, uh, is, is consolidation, de facto and de jure consolidation. De facto meaning, geez, these companies have to get together and they're not going to survive, or de jure consolidation, which means there's five guys in the room and three are got to exit. They're going out of business. So with the VC funding uh, bubble bursting, with private equity having a lot of capital to deploy, but not an easy way to find exits, and with the IPO market still pretty well shut, and, and by the way, with a couple of exceptions, it stayed shut most of last year. There's again going to be a trickle-down impact into all the investment banks, and and for example, Citigroup cut 20,000 jobs. So, you know, oh, are those big banks going to be thinking about their next big IPO? We've heard from another company I spoke to last week that, you know, they would never have, been, have had contact with one of those big investment banks because they were really a small company. But all of a sudden, the banks are willing to talk to them because they're looking to do deals for at a $30 million instead of a minimum $300 million range. So everybody is scrabbling around for some work to do, and everybody is looking to somehow get to the exits, but it looks like 2024 isn't going to provide a lot of those exits, which means instead of down rounds, you're going to see some culling of the herd. I hear it. And it just makes you think about when you do have those crazy periods in tech, indeed, when this podcast got started at the height of the pandemic, when you know startups were popping for crazy sums of money, how much confidence you need to get that bubble, bubblicious behavior and how little confidence there is as we look ahead into 2024. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, well, there's also a matter of perspective. So it's very easy to look at gyrations of the market on a weekly or a monthly or even an annual. I mean, the S&P 500 had a phenomenal performance last year. It was all seven big tech companies. But it's easy to look at a year or a short amount of time and miss the longer business cycle. And we have been in a long business cycle of creating all of these small companies with all of these distributed pools of capital and money being made off money by the VCs and the private equity firms and so and investors. But we may be coming to one of these Schumpeterian waves of creative destruction where a lot of those little companies simply can't make payroll, can't keep going, and you're going to see a, a, a massive culling of the herd where you get down to a few good ideas that really can attract funding and can find staying power and most importantly, generate cash and, and fund themselves. Okay, so let's imagine this long haul flight to New York is now flying over Nova Scotia, Canada and coming in for JFK. And I believe we're through the turbulence. But if I was to put my betting hat on, I think the third headwind that you're going to have is to do with going to the ballot box. And I think there's hundreds of millions of people billions maybe, who have to vote in 2024. Yeah. Take me through the headwind number three. Yeah, and look, I'm not going to 
opine on the direction of all of these critical elections that are coming up and and not just the the U.S., which everybody spends a lot of time uh, uh, seeing uh, like a bit of a dumpster fire, or the U.K., or South Africa, or India, or all the other countries that have to go to Germany the with box. AFD. Germany with AFD is getting very interesting. Yep, and, 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 and I have no idea how it's all going to play out, but it is going to skew the business cycle. No one mm-hmm. who is struggling right now in the luxury goods sector is going to be thinking that they want to do a big product launch next autumn when the entire public discourse is going to be consumed by politics. Interesting. So you're going to have to... The distraction to, cost of democracy. The distraction yeah, and, and cost And indeed, of getting what <laughs> is called in the ad world share of voice, getting heard for your new product introduction is going to be nigh on impossible in the second half of the year. So I think there's going to be a pretty hard stop after the Olympics in Paris when we move into a, a mode of, of the permanent campaign taking over everybody's time and attention for pretty much all of the third quarter of, of 2024 and into the fourth quarter. And then there's going to be a huge fallout because at least half of the population in most of those countries are going to feel aggrieved, hard done by, lost, and, and, and unhappy. So how this plays out over the course of the year is going to have a big impact on how businesses actually operate. And I think you're going to see a lot of companies try to make hay in the sort of February, March through June, July period, knowing that in the second half of the year, there won't be any oxygen left in the room for them to get their sexy new product launches out. Wonderful expression, no oxygen left in the room. Now, that is a problem for advertising products, but surely, at least in America at least, elections are great for advertising per se. When we talk about campaign finance, there's a dollar of campaign finance. How much of that dollar at gross, I just, this is me being very trivial in my thinking, how much of that dollar finds its way into advertising budgets? Is that what campaign finance there is? There is a lift of, of sort of the, in the 10 to $20 billion range, but the, the overall mm-hmm. U.S. advertising market is more like $200 billion. So it's right. not that much. It will take over certain media, but you know, you're not going to be seeing political ads when you go to the supermarket. You're not going to be seeing political ads when you're shopping on Amazon and they have a, a $45, $50 billion sponsored products business trying to mm-hmm. get brands to bid against one another to, to make sure what you fill your shopping cart with is what they advertised. So there's a lot of areas which are kind of safe spaces or, or won't be taken over by political advertising. Uh, but the political advertising will have a big impact on, for example, the, the, the television ad market. Got it. Now, last one before we close out, just very quickly for folks listening, they'll remember those lectures they had at university where they talk about political cycles and economic cycles. This is a show called Bubble Trouble. You devised that term. Do you see the political cycles producing bubble trouble in the economic cycles? That is tax giveaways to get reelected, stoking up problems further downfield. Yay or nay? Well, look, one of the arguments why the polls don't matter right now and Biden will win, is that it is very unusual for an incumbent president to lose, almost unprecedented for an incumbent president to lose when the economy is doing well. Now, when you think about the political cycle overlaid with the economic cycle, you have to realize that it's very unusual for 
a leader who's in charge of a healthy economy like you have now in the US to get kicked out. So a lot of times the economy, as James Carville famously said uh, in the Bill Clinton campaign era, it's the economy, stupid. Um, the economy tends to dictate the political cycle. If people feel that their lives are better off than they were four or five years ago, whatever the election cycle is, and the country's moving in the right direction because they have a bit more money in their pocket or they're, they're, they, they have a bit higher salary or their job security feels okay, then they're likely to vote for no change. But if they feel like things are getting worse and the economy is off the rails, then they are likely to vote in a protest way for change. And I do think those economic cycles really have a huge influence on the political cycle, much more than, than people are willing to admit. And people will clearly vote their own self-interest in many circumstances, even if they are willing to believe some crazy rhetoric from politicians. I hear it. So sticking with my aviation analogy to wrap up part one, if the CFOs are buckling up, then we, the passengers on this aircraft, need to buckle up too. I think that's the essence of what we're saying. The days of excess are over and the days of tightening belts is on. And that's a great way to wrap up part one. Hmm. But it's not all doom and gloom because I want to come back in part two and turn Rich's frown upside down. So stay with us and we'll be back in a moment. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble, where Will Page and I, Richard Kramer, are giving our sort of outlook for 2024. The themes and dreams and, and the pitfalls and pratfalls we're likely to see in the year ahead. Now, we've just flipped the script a little bit, and I've presented the, the pessimistic side of the ledger. And Will has swallowed a, a large handful of happy pills. He's ready to throw off his dour Scottish pessimism and natural inclinations to doom and gloom and tell us 
a couple of things that are gonna be tailwinds. They're gonna make us sit up and beg and ask for more in 24. Will, what could those be? Give us a first one. I won't use your BA flight analogy, but, but let's say we're, we're heading on holiday and the first thing we look at is the weather and it looks terrific at our destination. What are we seeing in that weather picture? Well, clearly that holiday isn't gonna be in Scotland anytime soon. Um, well, just on your introduction, I'm glad you said Will is going to throw off his kilt because that wasn't the intention as we approached Burns Night. But on the positives, I've been thinking long and hard about this for the benefit of the audience. I think 2024, economically speaking, is the year that reality falls back into theory and not the other way around. And what I mean by that is I keep stumbling on this observation as, quick question, Richard, when did the iPhone launch? 2008, Will. When did interest rates fall to zero, Richard? 2008, well, no, they didn't fall to zero exactly. But, but yeah, they started coming down in 2008 and they stayed low for long. So when we date this weird period where inflation has been above the base rate of interest, it's the iPhone, the post-iPhone economy. Everything that's happened since the creation of the iPhone has happened in this economic landscape, which is back to front, where putting money in a bank loses you money. And it's just, I just want to put that historical marker down before I get into my point, which is, it's so surreal to see how business as normal has kind of resumed since then. We've had highs, we've had lows, we've had bubbles, we've had troubles, but they're well different ends. And I remember studying that weird thing of inflation above the rate of interest, being told that was, that would lead to a calamity in monetary economics. It hasn't. But we have got this far along from 2008 to 2024 in a world where the banking model is completely dysfunctional. Mm. But we trundle along, we get there. Now, when I say this is a year when reality falls back into theory, and you look at where the base rates are, broadly speaking, 5, 5.75% in the UK and the US, and you look at where inflation is falling down from 6 to 5 to 4, I think this is the point where we get back to where we were pre-iPhone, Nokia economics, we could call it, <laughs> um, where we actually see inflation is 2%, Interest rate, uh, economic growth is 2%, the base rate is 4 and banks lend at 5 And that's called the Taylor Rule, a simple arithmetic way of saying, yeah. where should the base rate be? But, but let me ask you one tough question on this, which is a lot of that inflation started to kick in when we had some of these extraneous shocks, notably the war in Ukraine, which completely upended shocks. energy supply. And now we've had conflict in the Middle East. We have the Houthis threatening the supply chain, uh, that where the choke point where 20% of world trade passes through one narrow strait. How are we going to insulate ourselves in this volatile world that's to come from the kind of shocks that raise the rate of inflation and force policymakers to bring interest rates down to kind of preserve the economy? So I think what we've seen with the Ukraine war is inflation went up, not because of overheating demand, not because the economy, like you like to say, says it got ahead of its skis, but because of that supply side shock. And we have debated and we have inspired, this show has inspired several papers on, is there a causal link between interest rates and inflation? Hmm. You could have had interest rates remain unchanged throughout that war. Inflation would have gone up. And as the economy adapts to that war climate, as the economy adapts to new sources of oil and gas, new sources of wheat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, 
inflation goes down, irrespective of the interest rate. I think the adaptability of the economy to accommodate these shocks, to adjust to these shocks, has got stronger. It's been hit by a pandemic. It's been hit by a war. The next marginal shock that comes along, terrible tragedy that it will be, will not have the same impact on inflation and economic disruption as the past one. So I think the adaptability is important. Wow. But where it goes for me, where the reason to be cheerful about this is it's going to breed confidence. It might be misplaced confidence, but the idea that policymakers know what they're doing, I think a belief that policymakers know what they're doing because inflation's at two, growth is at two, base rate's at four, we lend at five. That return to normality has to be a good thing that mm. we feel like we're in a safer pair of hands. Yeah. Well, from your lips to God's ears, because in, in many cases, we fear <laughs> that the policymakers will be deciding things on a whim or for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with that sort of rational uh, calculus. Now, give me another one. We're heading on that wonderful holiday. We saw the package tour. We saw the brochure. We thought, you know, that looks pretty good. But we get to the holiday home or the hotel or the villa or whatever, and boy, it's even better than expected. You're looking at your dream location. What are we seeing in the picture? Okay, I'm going to use the acronym or the initials that were the phrase du jour, as you like to quote, uh, of 2023, AI and LLMs, artificial intelligence and large language models. But I'm not going to use those in the typical setting. I do think that 2024 will be the year that we see the impact of AI, we see the implementation of large language models, not in the private sector, but in the public sector. And a step back, public sector typically you know, has a stereotyped image of being slow, cumbersome, laborious, surrounded by red tape. I really do see a purpose for large language models in helping remove some of that red tape and to boost productivity. I'll give you three very quick examples in the area of education, health and law, just at a very high level, is it conceivable that AI could provide that one-to-one -one tutor that students up and down the country require? We know that tutorials, one-to-one -one tuition, creates a two-sigma problem. Kids who get it perform better than kids who don't. Why can't AI start building out that one-to-one -one tutorial model today? And that indeed is one of the ambitions of the Khan Academy. In health, Think about symptoms and diagnosis and the donkey work that donk doctors have to do. Surely some of that can be offloaded to a large language model that can read and prescribe basic health information to allow the doctor to spend more time doing operating. And then for law, well, law doesn't deal with people and policies like teachers and doctors do. It deals with words. Large language models deal with words. I really do see you know, companies like Fastcase, which are training off the entire US legal system being a 24-7, always-on, most-read, most-equipped lawyer in the world, and free, allowing access to law for the clients who need it most. So I'm going to drink the AI Kool-Aid, forgive me, but not in the same way it's that you see other people drinking it. I see so much genuine potential now in AI transforming public services. Have I taken a stupid pill? I think you absolutely have gone off the deep end, but but let's let's park that for a second. <laughs> Let me just throw one challenge to you, which is that the things holding back the adoption of some of these technologies are are human barriers. And let me give you a simple example. In a in a country like Germany, the bureaucracy seems to love paper, fax machines, stamps, etc. The number of civil servants 
that have a job which, are, which involves taking a piece of paper, treating it somehow, putting it somewhere, stamping it, signing it, checking it, etc. It's legions. And you'll find the same thing in Italy, in France. In France, anytime you're involved in a property transaction, you, you have to go to something called a notaire. When I have my will, if I want it actually to be recognized, I have to get a notary public to watch me sign it and stamp it in this yep. country. And I agree that AI and, and large language models could take a lot of that form-filling, basic grunt work off people's hands, but do people want to lose their jobs to that? And I think the barriers to adoption will be human resistance. And tell me, how do you see overcoming those? Well, I think your uh, skepticism is relates to that classic expression, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Absolutely. Lawyers won't vote for LLMs to replace the need for law without lawyers. That ain't going to happen in a hurry. But clients will. And yeah. there are law firms, big ones right now here in Europe, beginning to adopt chatbot solutions for clients to get them further up the legal ladder. I think sure. back to how I've always described capitalism, which is capitalism is when you employ a gardener to cut your grass because you can do something more productive with your time, yeah. even if you love gardening, and especially even if you love cutting grass. That's comparative advantage. I think what this will do is it's going to come into the public services, take that donkey work, that grunt work, off the hands of doctors who are already feeling constrained and let them to do more of what they should be doing and less of what they shouldn't be doing. That's right. it. You know, that's as far as it goes. And I think the appetite is for there and the winds of change are there for it as well, just to quote the Scorpions. Okay, let me get a third tailwind for you. You went to that wonderful destination with the terrific <laughs> weather. You checked into your magnificent villa you walk down to the local restaurant, you sit down with your family for a meal, and it is absolutely delicious. And best of all for Will Page, it's cheap. So I know I'm describing a lot of your holidays in, in, in the south of Spain. You get fabulous food, and it doesn't cost the earth like it does in a city like London or New York or Zurich or, or Tokyo or what have you. But, but tell me, what's a third tasty meal you're looking forward to, to gorging yourself on in 2024? I, well, this is a curveball, but here in the UK, at least, for our American listeners, we've had this Mr. Bates ITV drama about the Royal Mail Post Office scandal air during the Christmas period, where most people are belching on their sofa and killing time. Four-part drama, ITV, commercial public sector broadcaster, and it has gripped the nation. All right, we've seen that before, we'll see that again. But it's gripped the nation about a Royal Mail Horizon scandal, which you are a better place to describe for our listeners' benefit than mm -hmm. I am, which has been there for 20 years. Well, pretty much 20 years. Mm -hmm. And there's been books. Nick Wallace, listener of the show, has a book on this topic. There's been campaigns. There's been politicians. There's been court cases. But there's never been what we've seen in the past two weeks since the airing of this drama. Mm. There's never been so much political movement to appease and to compensate the victims of this Royal Mail scandal. And I'm just wondering why, and previous guest of the show, Sir Peter Bazalgette, has been quite vocal about this, so I'm stealing his words and giving him 100% of the credit, that drama might be achieving what the journalists can't. The journalists had this story, as you say, for two decades, and they could not move the needle in public emotion. Along comes a four-piece drama on ITV, a 
and every single person with a pulse in this country is obsessed about this scandal involving the Royal Mail Horizon, Fujitsu, the evil scum of the earth company involved in it, and why we have hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, innocent people who have been criminally charged. And I just wonder whether this is a year where we realise drama is what's going to move the needle, not journalism. Well, I have to say one thing I, I, I'm in violent agreement with you on is that capturing something in a brilliant narrative is, mm. is always, you know, elevates it in a way that the, the dour recitation of the facts and reading thousands of paragraphs from a Lord Justice about how flawed the Horizon computer system might have been is never going to capture. And I think having recognizable actors, and also having a narrative where you had a, a venerated institution like the post office punch down to the pillars of the local community, these local postmasters, and it feels like a, you know, we want to back the Davids because they've been spat upon by Goliath. And here, indeed, uh, you have behind it this notion and John Thornhill had a wonderful column in the FT today uh, talking about this, this wonderful notion that we should be listening to people and not trusting the technology. And clearly, yeah. there was Agreed. far too much faith placed in the computer systems when it was evident that 30% of postmasters all of a sudden didn't start committing fraud. Then there was the faith placed in these Pillars of the local community, the person who ran a post office out of their local shop in a small village in Wales. And yeah. so I, I think that's the, the, the drama that's captured people's attention has to do with these all of these trod upon little guys being abused by a, a, a big institution. And again, Peter Battlejet, friend of the show and past guest, on Radio 4, he had this wonderful point about, you know, why has it captivated the nation? Why are we up in arms? Why are we demanding change this month? Like, this whole thing could be yeah. wrapped up this month, and it's dragged on two decades, thanks to one drama. And he says, the opening scene in this wonderful English village on a beautiful summer's day, where the woman who runs the post office is going through a village making scones for people. Why does she end up in jail? And it's just, I can relate to a village life where people make scones for each other. And that's what opens your eyes to how the scandal unfolds, not terminology of legal court cases, settlements, injunctions, fujitsu. That's what loses audiences. Right. Start with scones and take me in, because I can relate to that. And a very nice woman who liked to make scones for her neighbours unfortunately went to jail for something she didn't do. And I, just, I, I don't know. It's, just, I just, it's an obvious point to make, but the nuance to it is the counterfactual. All the press couldn't achieve what a four-piece drama did. And as soon as Netflix sees this and sees this, they'll be onto this as well. But, but so see, well, I that's way too late because drama. I think you've already seen, you know, like Michael Keaton in, in Dope Sick, where you had yeah. an ordinarily family guy, salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar uh, worker, hurts his back, starts taking OxyContin, and all of a sudden he's he's a drug addict. And, and that's, and you know, clearly there has been a huge effort to bring the Sacklers to account, uh, largely unsuccessfully, for addicting millions of Americans to opioids. But it, it, it is that similar narrative that you had the little guy, unawares, trusting an authority, 
and trampled by a, a large faceless organization. Yep. Yeah, and Dope Sick, for those who haven't seen it, episode four will bring you to tears. Right, so let, let's bring the show to a close. We've gone through our headwinds and our tailwinds. Mm -hmm. The plane is either moving fast or slow or both at the same time, and the doors are going to blow out, pun mm -hmm. intended. Yeah. But give me a theme, a theme for our audience to pick out on in 24. What's, what's the word, the phrase du jour, as you like to say? What's the theme going to be for the next 350 days ahead of us? Well, you know, I hadn't thought of it this way before, uh, but your airline analogy struck me, and I think we are in for a lot of turbulence. Um, I, we don't have, entering this year, all of the obvious bubbles to burst, even though I think there is going to be a sense of fatigue with AI as you move from the brilliant, shining future, city on the hill, uh, future phase to the prosaic reality of implementing the technology. A bit like the metaverse, right? Yeah, and but I think, well, I, I think it's less like the metaverse in the sense that every big tech company today runs its business on some form of AI. They are automating mm. everything that they can all the time. They base all of their internal systems on machine learning and, and repeated efficiency gains. And if you want to call that AI, that's fine, but that's at the heart of of Google search and YouTube recommendation engines and Instagram feeds and, and Amazon product listings and so forth. So I think AI is already out there in the wild everywhere we look. It's just not necessarily something we n willingly and knowingly adopt ourselves in our daily lives. And, and that might change over the course of the year and that might not. But my word for this year is turbulent because I think we're going to see a lot more of these geopolitical challenges. I think we're going to see a lot of crazy noise around elections. And I think we're going to in for a very turbulent economic year as governments try to preserve the economic growth into those election cycles right. to get themselves reelected. What's your big... Do what you can to keep stability. Absolutely. And what's your big theme or prediction for the year? What, what gets you excited about... Uh, about 2024. Perhaps I've got more freedom to say this than yours, but I want to name a company, mm -hmm. a company that I use, a company that God knows over 100 million people are using right now, and it's Duolingo. And what I think here is this is a year where we're beginning to see how apps can really influence education. A lot of people fail to learn languages. A lot of those people are succeeding with Duolingo. And when you look at apps, you always have to think about the triangle of downloads. They got tons of downloads and it's growing. You've got to think about active users. They've got active users, and that's growing too, but also frequency. I just think apps like Duolingo, Strava, a running app, you know, apps which can maintain frequency are the ones that are going to stand above the rest now. I think this is the year where we really understand how to measure the value of consumption that the companies that we're looking at. And I'm just really excited to see these companies succeed in not just getting their download numbers up, not just getting their active users up, but their session count, their frequency of usage up as well. And when we part the wheat from the chaff this year, I think we'll see companies like Duolingo really rise to the top of the agenda. That's my prediction, well, which means you should sell your stock right now because my predictions never come true. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, if, if I was smart enough to have owned shares in Duolingo, which I did look at it and but foolishly didn't buy it, I would be in the last 12 months up 163%. So the market yep. has recognized that. It is currently well, only a $9 billion market cap company. And 
you know, I think it's very interesting. The, the flip side of that, if you believe in the AI future, is that Google Translate is going to work on the fly between language pairs like Japanese and Swahili without needing to go to English in between. And you're going to obviate the need for all of us learning languages because we'll have a universal translator in our pocket, a la Star Trek. But since I don't think that's coming in 2024, I think your prediction that the likes of apps like Duolingo or Babbel, that's another one that's coming up quickly, yep. are, are, are going to attract people's attention because they're really, they're fun, they gamify learning, and they help people expand their horizons. I'm with it. I'm with it. We have a fantastic year plan for you listeners of Bubble Trouble. Um, we've got a lot of great guests lined up, and there is going to be undoubtedly many bubbles cropping up that we will have to do our best to warn you about the trouble. So with that, I want to thank my co-host, Will Page. Welcome back, Will. I'm excited for this year. And thank you to all of our listeners. We'll be back next week with another episode of Bubble Trouble. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. <laughs>